I'm a funny guy. I like conflict, and I like things that make people uncomfortable, even when it's me that's uncomfortable. Was anybody else sitting there uncomfortable because you were sitting instead of standing up praising during that song? I, w I was like dying to jump up, right? Anybody else with me on that? Okay, so here's the deal. If you're ever sitting there dying to jump up and praise, I don't care what the worship leader said. I love you, Jim. Jim said sit. We sat. We're good at obeying, right? We can obey direct. We're good direction followers. But when the Holy Spirit is giving you direction in your heart, that supersedes Jim, okay? It supersedes Todd. And so when you're feeling it, and I was feeling it. I don't know why I didn't lead, but maybe so I'd have the opportunity to talk about this conflict of what's comfortable. Go ahead and be uncomfortable. Be the guy or the girl who jumps up and don't look around to see who else is going to support you. Just stand up and believe that if the Holy Spirit put on your heart to do it, that it's the right thing to do, whether anybody else stands up or not. Now, for the rest of us, if you see somebody jump up, support a brother. Support a sister. Get up. Praise with them. Don't leave them hanging out there all alone because that is even more uncomfortable than sitting there when the Spirit is, you know, like telling you to get up. So anyway, that wasn't in my notes. So we're going to be here long now. Just going to let you know it's like at least two extra minutes that I get on the end of this thing. So, hey, welcome back, Elevation Church. Welcome back to Studio B. We are here this morning in a great facility. Five weeks we've been in this facility. We are loving it. I think every week but the first week, that we've been here, we've had somebody new come and visit. And so I'm thankful for that. That's part of our mission. Uh, Elevation Church exists to lead people so that they would know Jesus personally, uh, so that they would grow in faith through relationships, and so they would go and share the love of Jesus with others. We lead by example. So if we expect others to do those things, we do those things. We do the knowing, the growing, and the going. And we planted the church here in the Flower Mound, Highland Village, Louisville area because we found that two out of three people in this community don't have a church home and don't identify or relate with any type of organized religion. And Christianity, by the way, is not about religion, but that's how, you know, like people qualify and quantify things is they, you know, they just call it religion. But it's about a relationship, hence the knowing part of our mission statement. So here we are doing this thing this morning. We're gathering together as a church, not in the church, but as a church, so that we can go out there and be the church and live up to what God has called us to be and to do. And so I am grateful to see all of you here this morning, and I am celebrating with you whatever great things God is doing in your life and uh, what the great things that He's doing here in Elevation Church. We're in a series, we're in week three of a five week series from the book of James. This series is called According to Jim. Now, we thought about making the series graphic, a big, like, 8 by 10 glossy of Jim Martin's face, but we thought that might scare too many people away. So he's one of the real simple, according to Jim, graphic in the Bible in the book of James. It's really cool. Gavin made it. It was awesome. But according to Jim is just a simple study of the book of James. We're going through it chapter by chapter, and I wish I could honestly tell you we're really doing a hardcore, you know, real in-depth breakdown verse by verse. We're going to go verse by verse, but there's a lot of stuff. Uh, I mean, J James just packs his book full. We're going to touch on a lot of it, but we're going to miss a few points. So if you're a real deep Bible scholar, just know it's not because I don't understand it or don't know it. We just don't have time to do all of it every weekend. So this week we are in chapter 3 of the book of James. We've been through chapters 1 and chapter 2, and now we're in chapter 3. But before we start in chapter 3, let's talk real quick about what we discovered in chapter 1 and chapter 2. I think back to chapter 1, probably the biggest point that stands out to me is when James says that we should consider it pure joy 
when we face trials of many kinds. Who struggles with that? There's three or four liars and the rest of us are honest, right? Who struggles? I mean, nobody really has it in them to consider it pure joy when they crash their car. That's a trial. Or when you go broke, that's a trial. Or when you're expecting an IRS check to come back to you and you meet with your accountant and you find out, no, you get to send one to the IRS. That's a trial. And I promise you, if you got that news from your accountant this year, you didn't jump up and go, woohoo, I've got such joy over that. But we should face trials with joyful hearts because, as James tells us, God uses trials in our lives to refine us and define us, to help us grow in our faith in Him. He makes us better me's and you's, if that makes sense. He makes you better at being you and me better at being me by allowing us to go through the trials of this life. And so I thought that was a really good nugget, a really good point from chapter 1. Another really good point that I came up with, something that was very memorable for me. Maybe it is for you. If it's not, you're going to get reminded here. James says that we can't just be hearers of the word. It's important for us to hear what God is saying. We need to come and gather as a church and go through the Bible and have teaching and do all of this corporately. You need to go through the Bible and, and, and do all of that personally, quiet time and prayer and all of that stuff. And we've got to listen for the still, small voice of God. We've got to listen to the teachers and the leaders that he places in our lives. But we can't check out at just listening. We have to be doers of the word as well. We've got to, to take all of that information and let it translate through our lives and come out as application. So when God is giving you information through a teacher or a preacher or through your quiet time or prayer or just that the Holy Spirit is speaking into you, you've got to take that information and then do something with it. You've got to go live that information out. That makes it application. And the real depth by the way, of the Christian life, isn't how much of this you know, it's how much of this you do. It's not just gathering all of the info, it's the living out of everything that God has put into you. And so I thought the, the reminder that we've got to be not just listeners, but doers of the word was a great, great thing from chapter one. Chapter two, last week we talked about the first thing, right out of the shoots. James hits the Christians right upside the head. Because remember, he wrote this book to Christians. This book was not written to the unbelieving world. It was written to the church. Therefore, James didn't write about how to be a Christian. He wrote how to live in light of the cross of Christ. He wrote to you and to me, believers in Jesus. And if you're out there right now and you're not a believer in Jesus, he didn't write this to you, but you can learn from it, okay? So don't check out on me, right? But he wrote this to the church. And so as the church, we need to figure out what he's saying, and then we've got to do something with it. And the first thing that he said last week was that we cannot, as a church, show favoritism. Favoritism in the church is forbidden. He uses the example of a, a rich man walking into the church with a gold ring and fine clothes, and the church brings him to the front row, and, hey, meet the pastor, and, hey, you know, come have ice cream with us afterwards, and, by the way, the pastor will probably hit you up for a monetary gift, but don't sweat that, you know. It, we can't show favoritism to somebody based on their wealth or any other cultural thing, because the church, he also said, sometimes will take a poor person and bring them in, and they're like clothed, ratty clothes, you know, dirty, maybe have a little stank to them or something, and we stick those folks on the back row, like we're some kind of fine dining restaurant, and if you don't have the right clothing, if you don't have a collar or a jacket, we're going to get you a table in the corner back there right by the kitchen. That's not how the church operates. 
When you think about who Jesus hung out with, Jesus hung out with the sinners, the, the messed up folks, the people who had the wrong attire and the wrong lifestyle. He actually stayed away, for the most part, from, from the teachers and the instructors in the temple and the, and the priests and, and all of those folks. So James says we can't show favoritism in the church. We can't treat one person better than another based on cultural context. When we do that, we place the culture in an elevated position and we relegate the Bible, we relegate Scripture to a lower position. And that is not how the church is to operate. He also said last week in chapter 2 that faith without deeds is dead. Isn't that a great, memorable little phrase? If you don't get anything out of this whole series, walk out of here with that. After five weeks, if that's all you get, I may not be happy, but I'd be pretty satisfied. Because if we all left out of here after five weeks in the book of James, understanding that if we claim to have faith, but we don't do anything with our faith, then we probably ought to check our faith pulse because we might be claiming something we really don't have. We might not be alive in Christ. We might be dead. We might be living in the world. We might not have the faith that we think we do, or at least we've not activated that faith in our lives. And so James doesn't mess around. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't waste time. I have um, danced around all of this stuff long enough. Let's jump right into chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If you would open your Bibles, if you have them, because I like to hear pages turn and it makes me feel better. But if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. We've got a ginormous screen behind us and Boom, there's a verse. So chapter 3 of James, verses 1 and 2. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When I read this scripture, it kind of puts a little quiver in my liver. It makes me a little scared, a little, just gives me that feeling just for a moment because I am a teacher in the church. And he says that as teachers, we will be judged more strictly. We're going to have an accountability level that is above and beyond the norm. Now, I know some of you are sitting out there today and you are involved in some way, some form, some fashion in teaching and in leading in the church. Whether you work with children Infants, crawlers, preschoolers, elementary schoolers, teenagers, I don't care. You, you fit the bill. If you're tweaking knobs and dials, if you're leading worship, playing instruments, if you're teaching Bible study classes, whether it's in this church or another, whether it's in a parachurch ministry, whatever, if you're teaching out of the Word of God, you're going to be held to a higher level of accountability. I think about this verse, and like I said, it gives me a little cause to pause. Because I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm not that perfect person that James is talking about. I mess up all the time. Like, I am a world-class sinner. I won't lie. I'm good. I can sin at a very high level. been training for it my entire life, all 39 years. I'm really good at it. Now, I'm forgiven, and I have conviction about my sin, and God is working in my life on the things where I sin. And it's amazing when I put one to bed and think I've got it beat, he just reveals the next one. And it very frustrating and scary because it's like, when are we ever going to come to the end of this? But the bottom line of this is, none of us is going to be perfect. We all live in a fallen world. We're all sinners. But James says, if we're going to teach, because a lot of people like to teach. A lot of people like the authority of teaching. They love the authority of standing in front of a room and commanding respect and sharing from the word. 
maybe even sharing their own opinions. And they love doing that, and the authority that goes with that is awesome. It's a really cool feeling. I, won't I enjoy it. I like to teach. It's part of what God's wired me to do. But another verse that I think of when I think about all this is Hebrews 13, 17. This is a verse that almost never leaves my consciousness. Basically what Hebrews 13, 17 tells us, he says that, that we should obey our spiritual leaders. He's talking to the church. Obey your spiritual leaders because these are men who will be held to a higher accountability. Don't make it hard for them. Don't make it difficult on them because that would not go well for you. Well, as a follower, every leader is a follower, by the way. As a follower, I read that verse and I see that I need to follow in good faith. I need to listen to what my spiritual leaders are telling me. I need to do what they're telling me. I also know through Scripture that I need to check that the person I'm following is leading me in Christ because if they're just leading me out of their own accord, I might want to check out on following them in that biblical uh, application, right? But if they're in fact leading me the way I'm supposed to be led, if they're things they're teaching me are, are really making it through the grid of Scripture as I run them through there, then I need to follow that person in a way that makes their leadership role easier, better, lighter. Leadership is a heavy burden. As a leader, I read that verse. As a teacher, I read that verse, and I'm like, uh-oh, those who must give an account. I, I'm going to have to account for my leadership of this church on Judgment Day. And, and James says the accountability is going to be at a higher level. And so for those of you who are following and for those of you who are leading, there's, a, there's some application in this today. If you're in a leadership role or if you aspire to a leadership role, to a teaching role, check your aspirations. Are you called to this or are you driven to this? If you're driven, that comes from you. If you're called, that comes from God. And it's one of the things I tell people all the time. Oh, that was a great message, Pastor. Thank you. I appreciate it. Listen, when it's good, it's from God. When it's bad, it's from Todd. And it's easy to tell the difference, okay? When, it, when you're driven to do something, that's from you. When you're called, that's from God. If you have a calling to teach, to lead, amen. Celebrate that. Let's do it. That's good stuff. Let me know. We'll get you plugged in. If you have a drive, then check yourself. Make sure that you are following God in anything that you do in leadership and teaching in the church because there is an accountability that comes with that authority. Too many people want the authority and either don't realize or think they can skirt the accountability. The accountability is going to be there. It is there in this life and it will be there in eternity. And that's what James is warning this early church about. Let's look at verses 3 through 8. James really starts getting into the meat of the message here. Verses 3 through 8. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants them to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. It's a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of a man's life on fire, and is itself on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. My dad 
when I was a kid, probably still does, but I don't know, I remember it from when I was like eight or nine, ten years old. My dad had a phrase that he taught me. Because about ten years old, I started thinking I was pretty cool, and I was pretty strong and pretty bad, you know, and I'd bow up to other kids, and I'd bow up sometimes even to my dad. That's a bad idea. If you're a kid in here, I don't know, if we got any young, it, don't do bad idea to bow up to dad. But I would run my mouth, and my dad would tell me, he'd pull me aside sometimes and say, don't let your alligator mouth override your hummingbird rear end. We'll just edit for church, okay? Don't let your alligator mouth override your hummingbird rear end. I didn't get it when I was 10 years old. I get it now because I can look back with retrospective 2020 vision and I can count the times and tell you the ways that I let my big old alligator mouth override my hummingbird rear end. And occasionally it got that hummingbird rear end kicked into next week. And I think that's what James is telling us here, is this tongue, this mouth, our words have weight. It's important what we say. We need to watch our speech because the words that come out of our mouth are a reflection of what is in our heart. And as a church, remember he's writing this to the church. If we are sinning with our words, sinning by what we say, that's the example we are setting for an unbelieving world. That's an example we're setting for our children who are supposed to be raised by us to follow Christ. It's a dangerous example we set when we sin with our mouths. The tongue is this, I heard a pastor once called a two-ounce slab of mucous membrane. Kind of gross, but it's a great description. It's the strongest muscle in your body. It's the hardest one to control. It doesn't have a mind of its own, but it's like it does sometimes, isn't it? Have you ever said something, and it's like you were trying, as you said it, to reach out and grab it and bring it back in? Because you know it was like the spark. You saw it leaping out, and the forest is about to be lit up on fire. This usually happens to me when I'm speaking to my wife. I don't know why. It's one of those things. Husbands and wives, man. We've got to watch our words. Words are powerful. Let's look at verses 9 to 12. With the tongue, James continues talking about the tongue here. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings. Humans who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and curse. Praise and curse. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear Olives or a grapevine bear figs. Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Y'all ever been to the beach, go to the ocean, get in the, get in the, get in the water there? I, I don't know that I would have ever understood this verse if it wasn't for a bad day on a beautiful beach in Cancun. We, we took a trip several years ago, Trina and I, before kids. In fact, she was pregnant with Lauren, our first when we went. She hated that. Beach vacation pregnant. Bad idea. So we're in Cancun with four other couples, and we go to a beautiful beach there in Cancun, and there was a little bit of a storm somewhere far off in the Caribbean, and the waves are rolling in, and it was pretty powerful surf. 
and you know, because my alligator mouth overrides my hummingbird rear end sometimes, I decided I can swim, no problem, I can swim in that. And I go charging off into the surf, and I'm doing okay till I get about waist high. And a wave comes rolling in, and I mean it bowls all 220 pounds of me straight over. Rolls me pretty much all the way back to the beach. And I came up with a mouthful and a gutful of salt water. And if you've ever done that, that is the most disgusting thing ever. You're not expecting it. It's water. We don't think of water as salty. We think of it as that, you know, even lake water is not that bad. I mean, you know, you don't want to drink it, but it ain't going to kill you. And you get a big old gullet full of that salt water, and it made me just want to blah. It was so gross. And I know that as a, 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 an Eagle Scout, I learned that when you're in a survival situation, you can't drink salt water because when you're, you're dying of thirst and you drink salt water, it actually pushes the good fresh water out of your cells because of some scientific thing that I don't understand. But salt water will kill you. It's poison. And so James is talking here. Apparently James understood this stuff better than I do. James is saying this salt water that we spew out with our tongues, these sparks, these flames, these negative things that we say, these harmful, hurtful, unbiblical, unchristlike things that we say with our tongues, with our mouths. They're poison to the world around us. They're killing the life in those that we are called to bring life to. See, James says we should be like a freshwater spring. That, I mean, think about it. If you just had a big mouthful of salt water and you went to the you know, beach, got to your beach chair, and you pulled out an ice cold bottle of nice, clean, fresh, crisp water and just, ah, how good that tastes. It's sweet, it's cool, it's crisp, it brings life, it refreshes you. That's what the words we say are supposed to be like. And sometimes we say those words, and sometimes we spew the salt water and we poison the world. And the interesting thing is that sometimes we will come to church on Sunday morning and we're spraying out, spring, you know, fresh water is just springing from us as we praise and we worship and we lift our hands and we sing and we applaud and we pat the pastor on the back on the way out the door and tell him what a great message it was. And we drive right out there to 407 and somebody runs the stoplight and we blow a string of expletives with a little hand gesture right next to the Elevation Church sign that we're parked by. Salt water to an unbelieving world. I'm just saying, how can we, James is saying, I'm not, how can we spew fresh and salt water out of the same mouth? That is what an unbelieving world finds so off-putting about Christians. That we can say one thing and then live like and, and, and spew the salt water and live this poisonous life in the next moment. The evil things that we say, denying God, GD, SOB, MF, JC, fill in the blank. We, most of the things that we say as expletives are really denying God. Did you think about that? We're, we're, we're basically putting God, we're cursing God or cursing God's people. We're denying the Christ in us when we say those things. Other things, we, we say things that destroy others and tear people down. You're so stupid. Why did you do that? I'll try not to look at anybody when I say things like, you're so stupid, because I don't want you to think I'm talking to you. 
because I've been that person when I thought I was sure the pastor was talking to me. And I was like, you're right, I am. But we say things like that to people. You'll never live up to this. You're just like that. And we know that when we say it, we're tearing them down. And maybe in a moment we feel better, like, huh, showed them, did something. It's shameful. We do it to our own kids. We do it to our spouses. We do it to people who we work with and people who work for us. We tear people down with our words. These are poisonous things that we do. But the good things that we can say with our mouths, the good things that our tongues can do, we can praise God, we can love God, we can worship God, we can love others, we can build one another up, we can evangelize, we can share Jesus with that world out there who doesn't know him. We can make disciples within the church. We can live out Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's what we're here for. We've got to think with our hearts first, then our heads, and then open our mouths so that we can minimize and limit the saltiness, the salt spring that is that two-ounce slab of mucus membrane, that strongest muscle in your body. You may never fully tame your tongue, but you can bring it under control to a large degree. Think with your heart first. What's in your heart will change what's in your head, and what's in your head can control what comes out of your mouth. Verses 13 to 18. James shifts gears. He had two real major points in this chapter of this book. The first one was talking about the tongue, talking about our words. The second one is talking about wisdom. And he says there's two kinds of wisdom. There are really two kinds of wisdom that he wants to talk about at least. He says there's real wisdom and there's worldly wisdom. So let's dive into these verses and find out what James has to say about what is wise and what is not. Verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, it is unspiritual, and it is demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and then peace-loving considerate and submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. It is impartial and it is sincere. Peacemakers, James says, who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. Reap a harvest of righteousness. I love that. Look at all these great descriptive words that James uses about false wisdom, worldly wisdom. I love these words he uses earthly, unspiritual, demonic, disorder, evil practice, selfish ambition, great descriptions of what it looks like when we are practicing worldly wisdom. I, you know, our culture is full of wisdom. It's, it's full of things that wisdom with those quotes around it. They're not really wise things, but because we're raised in that culture, we're surrounded by that culture, we're submerged in that culture, we become enculturated. By the way, I found out I did not coin that phrase, that word. I thought I came up with that. I thought that was original Todd. It's not. When I say enculturated, 
When I say we get enculturated, I mean we get immersed in the culture to the point where we choose the world's culture rather than the Bible, rather than God's culture. We elevate worldly culture and we relegate biblical wisdom to a lower position. That's what I'm talking about when I say we become enculturated. And we do. We can't help it to a large degree because we live immersed in culture and so we become enculturated. You think about how to break out of that enculturated place that we sometimes dwell. How to live the real wisdom, true wisdom, pure wisdom, the wisdom that has good fruit, as James says. I think about good fruit, by the way. I think about the fruit of the Spirit. My girls have a little Bible CD, and it has a song about the fruit of the Spirit. When anybody says fruit, I just automatically, I hear one of two things. It's bad when you have kids. I either hear the fruit salad song, right? Some of you parents are like, oh my gosh, I thought I would never remember that. Thanks, Pastor, for putting that in my head today. You'll go home today, you'll be driving along, you fruit salad, yummy, yummy. What am I doing? I think of that song, and then I think of the song about the fruit of the Spirit. And I won't try to sing that one because it's a little harder to sing than fruit salad, yummy, yummy. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, talks about the fruit of the Spirit and what the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That's the good fruit James is talking about that comes from a life that is lived in biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is not about selfish ambition. It's not about wanting to teach because you're driven. It's, it's being called to teach and knowing you're not qualified and you don't want to do it, but you're called, and so you do. It's, it's not leading your spouse or talking to your spouse with sparks of fire and tearing them down, but it's submitting yourself and placing them in a place of, of, of higher importance. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It's controlling the two-ounce slab of mucous membrane and the words. It's, it's thinking with your heart and in your head before you speak. And how do you gain this wisdom? How do we get out of the enculturated process and break those bonds and get into living this life that James, that God has called us to? And you do it by doing what you're doing this morning. You come to the church and you get taught. You go home and you open your Bible on your own and you read. You pray. You put into practice the Sabbath, like we talked about for the first six weeks of this year. That day that you set aside and make it holy and consecrated to God, that you don't do anything on that day except that which is refreshing or which is drawing you in closer to God and God closer to you. It's a day of renewal. You run around with people who think and act and talk similarly to you or in the way that you want to talk and act and think. Not that you turn your back on a lost world. We still love them. We still reach out to them. But you make your inner circle friends, those who are in the family of God, those who are following Christ. These are the ways that we break out of enculturation and get into that life of doing likewise, following Jesus, his examples and his teachings. It's listening and then doing. We break out of the enculturated life. False fruit versus good fruit. That's all you got to look for. Look for it in your own life. Look for it in the lives of others. 
that false fruit, selfish ambition, envy, all of those things that James talked about that come with, with worldly wisdom versus the good fruit of Galatians 5:22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Check the fruit on the tree. Check the fruit on your tree. Remember James said a minute ago, he said, uh, can a fig tree you know, grow grapes or whatever? Can a grapevine grow figs? No. Well, if we're Christians, little Christs, the fruit that we bear should be the fruit that Jesus bore. It's the whole concept of going and doing likewise. Bottom line today, James chapter 3. Watch the words that you say. They matter. They carry serious weight. And I know I've joked around a little bit today. I've made light of a few things. There's no levity about that. What we say makes more impact in the world around us than any of us realize. If you think about it, the biggest hurts most of us have ever experienced were not physical. It wasn't somebody who punched you or kicked you or did something to hurt you physically. Your biggest hurts in life, your worst memories, usually are because of the words that somebody said to you. We can speak poison, we can speak salt water, or we can speak life and refreshment to the world around us. And that's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be. That's exactly how Jesus described himself one time when he said, if you drink this living water, talking about himself, then you'll never thirst again. If you're in the church, if you're in the family of God, if you call yourself a Christian and your deeds back up your faith and you know that you know that you know, then that is who you are. That's who the Spirit of God empowers you to be. And that, my friends, is how we must live. We must go and do likewise. Heavenly Father, what an awesome morning to hear from James, Jesus' half-brother, the man who spent probably the most time with the Savior of any human being. Grew up in a shadow, following him literally James's whole life. God, I don't want to undersell that. I don't want to undervalue that because I think there's great wisdom in James's words. I think he had incredible insight into the person of Christ. Father, I pray that each of us today and every day would live that wisdom that is shared through your word, that we would let it penetrate our hearts, that it would migrate from our hearts to our heads, and that from our heads, our actions and our words would be affected so that we may be springs of life, of fresh water, of refreshment to the world around us, that we would not be poison, but that we would be beams of light, and great refreshment to a world that is in desperate need. Father, we love you. We praise you for who you are. We ask that you just continue, God, to build this church at your pace and your time. 
with your people, that we would follow as you lead. We lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.